Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me for this episode as we get the chance to speak with Leanne Holtzworth, and she's a co-author of a book called Human Work. So we have a great conversation about that topic, and it was one of those ones, I really liked them actually, where we ended up diving deep into all different topics that you probably won't expect when we start the conversation. It was really fun, and I hope you enjoy it. If you do, then would you be willing to tell one other person about Seed's podcast or post about this episode in social media? There's more than 340 other episodes that you can check out as well. And a shout out to Melissa Clark Reynolds, who connected us and it led to this conversation. Seeds is a project which is all about listening to life stories and working out why people do what they do. And you can find out more at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Leanne. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Leanne Holdsworth from Cultivating Leadership. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Stephen. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because you are a co-author of a book which is coming out called Human Work, Five Leadership Mindsets for Humanizing the Workplace. So I'm really, really curious about that. And I'm sure people listening are as well, um, because that's something that we can all relate to, right? Like, But before we talk about that, I would love to get a little bit more background on you, because um, I like to get the context of a person's journey and then what led them to do what they do today. So in your case, could you describe what was life like for you when you were, say, five years old? Oh, wow. What a great question. I was an only child and I had a very private set of parents. And so I have a lot of sense of being uh, on the outside as a five-year-old and, uh, and, and feeling very well loved in my family. Yeah. And and where were you growing up? Were you in a town or city or in the country or Yeah, so I was born in Hastings in the Hawke's Bay. And mm. when I was five, we moved to uh Auckland and went to live in Titarangi. Titarangi is a um, you know, somewhat it was certainly a very hippie place back then. And I went to the local primary school uh with uh the children of artists and um, you know folk who didn't necessarily always fit in with mainstream society. Right. (laughs) And was that something you were aware of growing up or was it something looking back, you kind of go, oh, that was a bit different? Yeah, completely had no idea that that was at all different. And then I I got moved when I was eight to the the Catholic primary school in a much more mainstream suburb. So then I realized that things were a little different in Titarangi. Right. (laughs) And I noticed in the book um, that you have a dedication to your mother. I would love to find out a little bit more about her because I understand that she had a big influence on you. Um, Can you describe a bit about her and her life? Yeah. Thanks for asking, Stephen. Yeah. So her name is Wendy Jones and she just passed away this last September. Um, I have, uh, we have dedicated the book to, to mum uh, and and the reason for that is she really spent her life modeling what it was like to bring love and care no matter where she went. And she was one of those people that every conversation left the person that she was with in a better space because of the conversation. And so everything that I know of uh, in the world around being caring and loving to folk around me, I've really learned from her. And so it's it was seemed really natural that at the time when I was at the height of, you know, that massive writing effort at the end of a, a book project and she passed away, that uh, the book would be dedicated to her. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. It's amazing. When we think about our influences, you can't go much further than your parents, can you? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And what were some of the ways that you saw that as a child? You mentioned that attitude she had and and how people would leave feeling better. What Mm. were some ways that that was practically outworked in her life? Yeah, you know, I didn't realize how good at that she was uh, until she died. And so it wasn't something that I was particularly aware of as a child. Uh, But when she passed, she she spent the last nearly year of her life in a rest home. And 
the staff of that rest home came in and shared stories about how important she was to them in terms of being able to be somebody that they could come and talk to about their problems. And mum was, the reason mum was in a rest home for that last part of her life is she was really sick and in a lot of pain. And, you know, right up until her death, she was able to really just be there for the other person in conversation. And, And so we had a lot of tears from the staff from the rest home that she was in, which I was told by them is very unusual. Mm. What a yeah. gift it sounds like she was to everyone around her. What really What do you think had shaped her to be like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Her mother was raised in a convent with nuns and uh, she had an incredibly strong Catholic faith. And she was a very active Catholic, you know, in, in terms of, um, you, you know, really supporting the community in very practical ways. And I think that mum learned a lot from her mum about what it was to be a good human. Um, and and mum was also the youngest of six children. And, uh, you know, sometimes that can go pear-shaped, right? It can be uh, end up with the spoiled child. She tells me that um, she used to tell me that she was she was spoiled as a as a little kid, but um, I, I certainly not, didn't see any of that. So she just she really just took care of people as a natural way of being, and, I, and from what I can tell from her growing up, it was really from her mum. Wow, that's really interesting to me because I love the idea that we get passed on more than just our genes, you know, our eye colors and our our hair or what we look like that actually there's deeper things that get passed through generations. So it sounds like for you and your work, you know, this book that we're going to be diving into, it feels like there's probably some themes and things which you learned from your mother, who in turn learned it from her mother, you know, that there's a generational passing on of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we hear a lot of talk now, don't we, in terms of um, the inherited nature of things like trauma. Um, but I, I also really so strongly believe that um, if you're blessed and privileged enough to have been um, inherited some of those deep loving genes, uh, then that's just as likely, as you say, to be part of, you know, who what we're born with. Yeah, that's great. So just you mentioned that you're an only child. I'd love to find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I grew up um, with a younger sister, so I wasn't an only child. What's it like growing up as you're getting a little bit older, like 10 or 11 or 12? Yeah. Well, uh, what I did by the time I was 10 was I worked out what it was going to take to fit in uh, so that I could create some community outside of this quite um, closed um, three of us. You know, I grew up with mum and dad. And so I became, uh, you know, I just remember this. It's almost like overnight of realizing that the kids that had community, that had friends, were really good at something. So what I needed to do was become good at something. Uh, so then I, I, I don't know. I don't remember having some kind of conscious process of what am I good at? I'll get better at it or something like that. But what I ended up doing is redoing all of my school books, like every one of them. I got mum to buy me a new 1B4 or whatever they're called. And I I got a speedball, which I don't know if anyone's heard of that. It's from 100 years ago, uh, where you, you make your your headings, all beautiful fonts and coloured in and everything. And I just presented my books just all day and all night that I wasn't at school, I ended up doing this. And and so I, I, I started to just do things well. And it really turned a corner in terms of my self-confidence because I was getting some really good feedback. And, uh, yeah, so, I, I, I mean, I, that was the, really the beginning of me seeing that, oh, I, I, might, I might actually be smart or I might actually be able to do something well. Um, and then I, I had these messages from my father growing up, like, you can do anything, right? You could be the prime minister. And I remember that sitting with me, like, actually, the, the day that I realized I didn't have to aspire to be the prime minister just because I could be. Like, I believed it so deeply, it felt like some kind of responsibility, right? And so I remember the day when I went, ah, oh, just because I could be the prime minister, because dad said I could, and I believed it. 
doesn't mean I have to be the Prime Minister. So anyway, I think as an only child, you know, coming to about 10, I started to get good at things. And for whatever reason, um, I ended up being able to start to have friends and be part of, you know, part of a community at school. Yeah, that's really great. It's always interesting to hear these different backgrounds and, you know, what's shaped a person to then go on to what they what they become. Because I imagine in the work you do today, having the ability to build those relationships is pretty important as well. Um, it's, it's it sounds so like it was important. early on. Yeah, <laughs> it's so important, Stephen, but it's also a real trap, right? Like, I mean, I, I notice it coming up in me, like how important that strong drive to belong is. And so, you know, I just watch it in myself. Mm. Yeah. What do you mean? Unpack that a bit more. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, <clears throat> if you see things in life like you do, Stephen, I know, I know this of you as I've um, uh, heard a little about the the people that you've pod- you've interviewed in your podcast, the book that you've written, and just. Um, if you want to kind of swim upstream a little bit, then sometimes you can't end up having all the belonging that you want. And mm. so if you believe in something strongly enough, I think that sometimes you've just got to be able to be willing to not have all the um, kind of agreement that helps us feel like we've got that sense of belonging, right? Mm. I wonder if as well, it's just riffing off of that in a way to be able to speak into the system or into a group, you can't be wanting to be liked by that group in some ways, you know, like to speak honest truth, that has to be more important than being accepted. I think you're right. I think it does. uh, It does take some courage, doesn't it? To be in that place of not needing necessarily to be liked. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm still not great at it. It's definitely work in progress. Yeah, no, it's good. I've been thinking a lot, though, about system change and how do we actually implement, like, between generations that in 30 years, the world will be different. How do we get, in, in a good way, you know, in a positive mm-hmm. way, how do we get the ingredients for that change? And I think it often is people need to stand up and need to point things out and do it in a way that's respectful, but ultimately means they might be excluded from the in-group or the in-way of thinking. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that that, uh, well, we'll talk about this later, but, you know, like one of the mindsets from the book is about learning and growth, and I, and I think that if we can nurture that ability for us to really learn some more about who we are so that we can have some more confidence to really speak clearly into what we see as possible, which might end up costing us some belonging or costing us some friendships or whatever it might be. But in order to serve a future that serves everyone, uh, I think that's um, mindset of learning and growth is just so fundamentally important. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I do a bit with the Institute of Directors. And one of the things I notice of the people who come on the courses is they have a culture or a mindset of learning, even yeah. though they're, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, yeah. they're still there hungry and wanting to learn. Um, and when I think even on what you've said, you as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old, you somehow were able to pull yourself out of your situation and ask objective questions. And I think some people go through their whole life just kind of going along, you know, we're using the picture of the flow. <laughs> um not really thinking about where they fit in. And that's my hope with the podcast and and doing this type of discussion is actually, you know, objectively outside of yourself, what role are you playing and what could it be? Oh, that's really beautiful, Stephen. Uh, gosh, I, I wish we had hours and hours to talk because that really riffing on that, it just reminds me of, of an idea that one of my colleagues, uh, Jennifer Garvey Berger, who's also written uh, one of the forward writers for the book, um, she is one of the founders of Cultivating Leadership, and, and she talks about this idea of in development of, of being able to be uh, object to ourselves, to be right. able to have 
distance from ourselves and to be able to to watch ourselves and and look at ourselves from a distance rather than being completely subject to ourselves and not being able to in fact see these patterns or ways of being because uh, it's very difficult once when we're subject to something isn't it to actually take a step towards growth or learning uh, we have to create that bit of distance so that we can kind of watch ourselves from outside as you say yeah, I think that's right. No, I'm sure I would get on well with that person because I, I've been thinking about it a lot. And in a way, um, we're going to come back to your life, by the way, but I like to go off in tangents when they strike me. So just thinking about that a bit more, it's it's almost a difference between being reactive. In other words, things are coming and I'm reacting to whatever the circumstance is and being proactive in that things are coming, but I'm proactively taking the first step or thinking about what my response is and yeah it's it's really a good topic <laughs> yeah I love that idea and if we think about it in relation to human work which is you know what the book is all about if we can build people's capacities to be able to really be more proactive rather than reactive then you know we all get triggered right you me everyone um but if if we can s- somehow build our self-awareness so that we're less able to really react in ways that are not really supportive of people being at their best. Mm. Um, it's got to, it's got to serve, um, it's got to serve us as humans. eh? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'd l- love to ask a question then, you know, you're coming up through your teenage years. Did yeah. you have any idea what you wanted to study or what work you wanted to do? Like we're talking into 15, 16, 17 years old, like you're kind of getting to the end of high school. Yeah. What subjects interested you and did you know where your path was going to take you? Yeah. That's such a beautiful line of questioning that you're using, Stephen. I'm really appreciating <laughs> being able to reflect on this. Uh, so my father was an accountant and so I mean, I just, in that generation, I'm 53, where I really didn't question it. I didn't think about the options. I do not remember having a careers advisor or anything like that. And so uh, I never thought about it. You know, I was good at accounting and economics uh, and math. So it seemed like a bit of a no-brainer. And um, and and actually, I ended up going and, and, and studying, doing a commerce degree and becoming a chartered accountant. And that was the gift that has me be right here today, 30 odd years later, um, talking about human work, because it was the experiences that I had as an accountant that had me see that something else must be possible. Hmm. That's really interesting. Well, we got to dive down a little bit there. (laughs) So was it the example, you think it was it your father's example, you know, well, he's an accountant, therefore, that's a natural place for me to go. Is that kind of looking That's what back? Happened. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, completely. That's what happened. But by the time I uh, worked out, and you know, I'd mastered this idea about doing really well, right? So, um, you know, that followed me through school and and uh, a few years into my chartered accounting career, if you like, it only lasted four years. So, you know, <laughs> when I say a few years, and there was only one year after that, um, I I ended up uh, becoming the oh, the young chartered accountant of the year for the for the Auckland region and and you know like I I, I just I was mastering how did how do you nail this to you know be really good at this and uh, but along the way what I realized is that over those four years every time I went to get in the lift in the morning I felt like I could only take a little part of me with me. Hmm. And that started to become more and more untenable. And I, in the end, why I only lasted four years is I basically said, actually, I made this gross generalization. I said, oh, the corporate world, it's just not for me. Because if I can't bring all of me with me, then uh, then I, what is life? You know, like mm-hmm. I spend all this effort and time and you know, pushed myself really hard and all of that. And, and um, to what end? Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear because I, I love, I want to start shifting gears towards talking about the book, but knowing that context is really setting us up well 
to then be able to have a discussion about some of the observations in the book. So just dwelling there for a little bit longer, you know, you're getting in the lift and you're realizing that you don't feel the spark or the, the creative energy or anything. Um, yeah. What, was that a moment that you thought I need to do something else or was it like a gradual building? And then what was it that triggered you, I guess, is my question to yeah. then do something else. And, and also what was that other thing that you did? Yeah. Okay. So it's easy for me to be able to tell the story in retrospect. I think at the time it would have been so much harder for me to say, what, what are the, what are the, what are the triggers that are there? Um, I can tell lots of little stories. I remember my, um, you know, like I remember the partner that I worked for and he would, um, he would pick up the phone. It was terrifying having to ring him, you know, this junior in the accounting firm. And he'd pick up the phone and he'd answer it with his surname. And, you know, he, so he'd just say that, just say, just like say, Holdsworth. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think there were just these tiny little um, pieces of evidence that had me feel like, Oh, just not confident or or whatever to to be my full self. Right. Um, I also realized that, you know, in the accounting world back then, surely it's not the same now, but I was charged out for every six minutes of my time. And um, maybe it's a little similar in the legal world, Stephen, I'm not sure. <clears throat> but uh, um, I just, I do remember thinking, gosh, if only... Um, if, uh, if only I had more relatedness with the people that I worked for in the firm, if only they understood me a bit more and I understood them a bit more, I'm sure I'd be able to contribute in a much greater way than just being focused on, I've got no time to have a conversation with another human being because I've got to be, you know, 90% productive, you know, all of that, right? Mm. Uh, and so there were just these ways of being that just ended up having me feel like this is not for me. Like I'm not, I can't be a full human being here. This cannot be the rest of my life. Mm. And so where, what I ended up doing was, um, was going and um, living in central Otago with my husband. And we are talking, I was 26, right? 27, something like that. And uh, we, we bought a piece of land down there and a small piece of land and two 1862 rammed earth cottages and we started a bed and breakfast. And uh, and it was just like, well, clearly this is the life for me. Um, and while I was down there, I had this opportunity to participate in a values-based leadership forum that Johnson & Johnson put on. Uh, it was a fantastic program and I... I, I don't know why I went because I'd really put that whole life behind me, but value something about values kind of struck me. And, and so I ended up heading up to this conference and it was there in the room with 80 other 28 to 32 year olds that I realized that the experience that I had was not personal, it was systemic and that I would spend the rest of my life trying to make work more human. Hmm. And here we are. 30 years later. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I'm really excited about this conversation because it's obviously something that resonates a lot with me as well. You know, having worked now for 22 plus years as a lawyer, <laughs> you can imagine in different environments around the world and things. Um, what what outworking did it have, you know, that, that realization? Did you know what you would do next? Because you've written another book before as well, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, I had no idea. So I, I came back to Central Otago where my husband and I had this tiny little farmlet and we just brainstormed. So what are the ways that, what is the first thing I could do, right? Not like, oh, what's the right answer? But what's the first thing that I could do that might shift the dial a bit in terms of making work systems more human? And and so there was all sorts of things. There was go back into the corporate world. There was uh, start our own firm so that I, you know, I could experience creating um, a more human workplace. There was uh, make a film. There was write a book. There was like all these things. And uh, in, in the end, we just decided that um, that I would write a book. And so I did that, celebrating Australian and New Zealand CEOs doing well by doing good. It was called A New Generation of Business Leaders. And that was, um, 
yeah, some 20 years ago now. Um, and then ever since then, my career is just, I mean, if anybody looked at my CV, they'd be like, well, there's clearly no path. She doesn't know what she's doing here. And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I have got this little seed that follows me, right? Which is, ah, okay, this is the context today. I, I You know, whatever it is, I've got three children or a newborn or um, I've got this particular financial pressure or, or I haven't or, you know. And so I've done... A number of things uh, since then, but here I am uh, today uh, working in leadership development um, and taking on any projects that help make work more human. That's great. And I think that our mutual connection point was Melissa Clark Reynolds, right? Who you yeah. interviewed for the first book exactly. and suggested that I have a chat with you. So a shout yeah. out to her. <laughs> shout out to Melissa. And I mean, she's just been such a huge support in terms of, you know, you've got to have community around you, right? To be able to have these conversations so you don't think you're going crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so Melissa has been a, and a really important thought partner for me for the last 20 years. Yeah, that's great. Well, shifting our conversation then just thinking about the title of the book, um, you know, you're talking about work, but you're talking about human work. Maybe could we start there? What do you what are you getting at when you're using that that phrase? Mm, human work? Yeah. 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 Because I can kind of get, you know, the story you gave of the um, the senior person who would answer with their surname, you know, mm -hmm. like it, it's not a very personable style, is it? It's more uh -huh. of a older generation, you know, uh -huh. um, it, and and I can I hear what you're saying as well about not feeling like you were bringing your whole self to the experience of engaging in relationship with the clients. I think I'm really lucky in my situation because I've been able to do that objective looking at my career that we were talking about. Because yeah. seven years ago I came back to New Zealand and consciously reshaped my practice into a purpose-driven practice where I I'm here to serve the clients, you know, and and so I've consciously made a choice about it. Um, but I've been in other work environments, which are much more about, as you mentioned, the billable units and how much can we charge because we need to make profits, you know? So um, yeah, but I'm just curious what you're meaning when you're thinking about human work. Um, yeah. And I have my own thoughts, but I want to hear what yeah. you have to say. Well, I'll probably frustrate you and, and just tell you a story and then and then feel free to come back to say, pin me down, because I can I can easily be pinned down. But I think this is a more interesting story. Uh, when, when I had my first child, she's now 23, Liberty. Um, I It was the first experience I had in my life where I felt like this was beyond my capacity. I did not know how to manage the responsibility of raising this baby for the rest of its life. Like it just was so overwhelming to me. And I was raising this child in a home with my mum who had moved with us uh, and my husband, incredibly loving, supporting husband. Uh, and then we brought this, I, I, you know, we brought this baby into the world and I was overwhelmed by this. So my solution to this was, <laughs> wow, what must it be like for women who bring babies into the world who don't have this kind of supportive environment, right? So I that started me off on a, on a search to find a way that I could contribute out in the world to women who were not coping with, um, with having babies. I was never um, diagnosed with post, what is it called? Um, mm -hmm depression you know post 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 having a baby uh and I, I don't think I was that I was just like I was just so struck by this idea so anyway I spent a few years volunteering for a, a domestic violence organization where one of us uh, or two we'd always go two at a time would would uh, go out overnight and work with uh, the victim of uh, domestic violence arrest. So the, the perpetrator had been taken away by the police and they'd phoned the agency and we'd gone and worked with the with uh, the woman. It was, in my instance, it was only ever woman. I know that sometimes men are victims of domestic violence too. So worked with women and oftentimes her children and sometimes also her parents. Uh, and... It was it was only at that time that I realized that there were these children were growing up in home environments that were so different to mine that that where they didn't have the sense of love and possibility and uh, sense of 
being able to do anything, fulfill their dreams, you know, in the world. Um, not only that, but but their their emotional needs were so far from being met, right? And there was something about that experience over a few years that had it become so obvious to me that I had missed so much in my life up until then. I had no idea really what compassion and empathy was, despite having been raised by an incredibly loving and caring kind of mother. I expected all humans in the world to really pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, and you know, like dig in and, 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 and really support themselves and all of that sort of stuff. So this experience of working in domestic violence was just such an incredible gift for me because I got to see the strength of these women, the, the, the difficult situations that they were in in terms of being able to take care of their children and, um, and themselves and the, all the psychological pressures that go with domestic violence. Uh, and so I think that's been able to give me the sense of human work we have no idea what the person who we work alongside with at work is dealing with. We've we've no sense of of what they're trying to work through. And what if how we were as a fellow human to the person we work with made a difference to who they were able to be when they went home at the end of the day as parents or partners or contributing members of society. I mean, what if how we were at work together actually reduced things like our terrible statistics in terms of domestic violence? What if how we were at work together positively influenced our social outcomes? That's what I really care about, Stephen. And so yeah. when you ask me about what I mean by human work, really fundamentally, it means that can we utilize the power of the workplace to enable us to be the best versions of ourselves, whatever that means for us, so that we can go home at the end of the day and be the best partners or parents or contributing members of society we can be? Mm, that's great. No, that's very helpful. I love stories. That's one of the things about the podcast. You can just go off and and learn <laughs> via the stories. Um, so yeah, I have I have my own thoughts about work, and I'd like to share them if that's okay. Please, I'd love to hear um, them. It's it's more just that I've realized. Yeah, I'm curious because you've been researching this and looking into this, and and then I'd love to find out about some of the mindsets that maybe would help us to better contextualize work. But what struck me recently, you know, in the last few years, is that quite often people talk about work life balance. And they frame it in a way which is there's work and there's life. And you have to somehow, you know, it's like a, a balancing of the good and the bad. And it's by implication, I want the good stuff, you know, which is life. And I want to do as little as possible of the bad stuff, which is work. Uh -huh. And And what I've been wondering about and thinking about is that what I am hoping to model is something that's more like work-life integration um, mm -hmm. rather than thinking of it as one or the other or distinct things, because I would hate to be one person at work and a different person outside of work. You know, like, I don't think it should be like a split of personality. Like I do work so that I can get enough money to have a life. I would mm -hmm. rather think of an overarching umbrella which is my life and work is part of that. So anyway, I've been just been reflecting on that a lot relatively recently in terms of I want my work and my life not to be separate in the sense of I only do this to have a life, but actually to integrate the two. And then for me, it comes back to what type of work am I doing? Is it meaningful? Is it having an impact? That's then kind of the flow on from that. But that's a lot of content. So <laughs> I don't know if you have any first impressions or thoughts about that. I, I, I'm what, what, what it makes me really curious about, Stephen, is um, I hear a, a couple of ideas in there and I wonder where your emphasis is because I hear like work as a thing that you do and life as a thing that you do. And then I hear work as a way of being and then life as a way of being. Mm. Uh, and you want them to come together. Uh, and I wonder if it's if what the 
impulse inside of you is most interested in coming together as one human and being the same person, regardless of whether you're working or in life, or is your impulse more about being able to have my life and my work not be so separated? Mm. I think it's probably a little bit of both of those. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I would tend towards the workaholic side of the spectrum in terms of I want to get things done for my clients and I'll, I'll just keep working to do them. And having worked in an international law firm where they, that was actively encouraged, <laughs> it's important to me now to be able to go home and be with my family and recognize that in myself, but also wanting to make sure that I have an integrated life, I guess, that, that work isn't something completely separate to who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then I'm, I'm really hearing the purpose piece in here. Like mm. it sounds to me like you've really managed to create a work life that is aligned with your purpose. And aren't we so lucky? And imagine if we were able to, in some way to be able to support others to be able to do that too. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I view as one of my missions, which is why I like talking with you <laughs> is that hopefully somebody out there is listening to this and thinking about you know, the earlier example of objective and subjective, and maybe they're thinking, actually, maybe I need some change here because I feel more like Leanne did when she got in the lift to go up to her work and feeling like she doesn't really like it. Whereas I honestly do feel like I've been able to shift from how I started my career to now being able to focus on things that I think really matter and are having impact. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic, that's for sure. Super interesting, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. So coming back to your book, um, yeah, what are some of the, the the things that you discovered? I know you talked with lots of people. Um, yeah, uh-huh. what were some of the things or the mindset shifts that might help to more humanize the workplace? Yeah. Well, I'd love to answer that question. I'll just go sideways again. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, the book is written by both myself and my co-author, Narayan Wong. Um, Narayan's based in Canada. And uh, we have a team of around 12 of our colleagues who have been involved in the book project um, in, in various different ways through finding these leaders around the world who are in the business of humanizing work uh, or interviewing or writing or um, holding it together for us when we feel like the wheels are falling off on the writing project or whatever, you know. So it's a, it's a big collaborative project and we really do feel like we're standing on the shoulders too of uh, voices that have gone before us. One of the um, authors of the forward, I've already mentioned Jennifer Garvey-Berger, but Uh, is also Joseph Jaworski, who is a thought leader who I have followed all of my professional life, uh, who has really helped us, I think, um, mainstream the idea that if we we moved away from a more uh, technical, traditional way of being in our organizations and valued the human um, and the and the human systems, how might things look and how might we be able to move forward in that way? And there's just so many thinkers who have really enabled this message to be heard in 2023, right? Um, mm. So I want to say that in the first instance. Um, in terms of goodness, what was your question? What we learned? Oh, well, I have a question about that, actually. Yeah, okay, I, I, love, I love that because um, yeah. I, I, I totally get you because... It sometimes you look at something and you say, well, those are the two co-authors or look, that person did it. But as as you know, as we know, and as is coming through this conversation, we build on other people and learning from them. So I like, I like the way you're acknowledging that. Did you find any, um, just as a basic question, but your co-author being in Canada and you're in New Zealand, was there anything that was different, you know, across the the waters that separate us in terms of culture or work or anything like that? Yeah. Well, I guess one of the things is Narayan and I are both colleagues in Cultivating Leadership, and there's 80 of us in Cultivating Leadership, and we're spread all around the world. So I wonder if we become a little bit blind to difference uh, in that way, and that I I can't spot it 
as well as I used to be able to. I think that's quite possible. So I find it hard to answer that question. I I am very conscious um, working in a global organization of how privileged we are in Aotearoa to have the influence of um, indigeneity in a way that just doesn't exist in other country in other countries, you know. Um, so Narayan and I had a number of conversations about um, how explicit, how much more available it is in New Zealand for us to be having decolonization kind of conversations than it is for him in Canada. Um, and I certainly my colleagues in other countries have the same sort of experience. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's one that I could notice. Huh? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that um, leads on to another point that I should have asked before about cultivating leadership. Can you explain a bit more about that? Because that sounds like an amazing ecosystem, 80 people spread around the world. Yeah, yeah it is an amazing ecosystem. And it is one of the case studies in the book, actually, because it is uh, it is such a human place to work. And when I say human, I, I, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean it's all, all uh, I don't know, like, easy right it's messy it's uh it's it can be raw it can be deeply challenging um but it's very uh permissive of full authenticity and vulnerability mm. um and so it's a it's a deeply human workplace um but what i would say about it is that it was founded around 12 years ago by four folk, um, was actually founded in Paikakariki here in Aotearoa. Um, uh, But two of the founders are American and two of the founders are from this country. And that was 12 years ago. There's now 80 folk. Uh, It's it's not an employee, employer kind of uh, organization. It's very non-traditional and non-hierarchical. There is a chief cultivator and a chief uh, operating officer and our structure is that um, recently the founders gifted the whole value of the business into a foundation and the Tilt Foundation uh, purpose is to uh, be able to uh, improve social, environmental and um, uh, inclusivity goals and so uh, it's unusual in almost every way. It is a learning community uh, and we work with with organizations large and small, uh, often multinational, and we build multinational teams. And through COVID, of course, it's just that's been a lot easier. You know, mm. we haven't had to travel in the same way. Um, yeah. That's great. No, that's really good background to know. So just thinking about the book then and those leadership mindsets, <laughs> what yes, are some things that... Then. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the time um, we we publish this, what we'll do is we'll put a link in the show notes. So if anybody is listening and they want to get a copy, um, we can put a link either if we publish this before it comes out, something where they can pre-order or find information, but look in the show notes to find that. Um, but yeah, thinking about the mindsets, what are some things or tools that people could take away from them from this conversation? yeah. I wish I could say, Stephen, well, what we found was there there was just, basically there's these five steps. If you do these five steps, you'll end up with a really human organization. I really wish I could say that. I just can't. In fact, I want to quote one of the leaders that we interviewed from the book. His name is Fred Carstens. And he says this, you have to make it up as you go along. There is no manual. You can provide anecdotal evidence of things that have been a success, They might spark something that you want to try, but mostly it's an attitude. Don't be afraid to try. Take the risk. And I think that's how come we ended up with a book about mindsets. And we had no idea when we started off how we were going to communicate this information. So we did get to speak with 12 leaders from around the world, and they are from as as diverse leaders as we could possibly find from everywhere around the world that is is as geographically different as possible, uh, a mix of uh, genders and uh, cultures, and uh, heard some very, very different approaches. I had 
uh, attended one of the leaders' trainings on this about five years ago, Bob Chapman. He's one of the leaders interviewed in the book and wrote a book, Everybody Matters, uh, together with Raj Sasodia. Those of you in the um, in the corporate social responsibility sustainability worlds have probably heard of, of Raj Sasodia. And so Bob Chapman... Um, has a has a blog called Truly Human Leadership, and he, where he tells stories about the success or otherwise of Barry Waymiller, which is the company that he runs. It's a um, fourteen thousand four billion dollar uh, US turnover company, so kind of mid size, I suppose, in the US. Uh, and it, they actually have a university that you can go along and learn how to do this truly human leadership. From. So Bob's approach, uh, he's had a lot of experience from the, of, of humanizing workplaces, and he comes very much from a love and care kind of mindset, um, talks about treating people, um, uh, measuring the success of the company uh, in terms of the way that they treat their people. And that includes all sorts of measures uh, in people's personal lives as well about how work affects um, their home lives. So there are these five leadership mindsets that we saw that were patterns across these leaders that we interviewed, across the research that Narayan and I and our, our um, collaborators have done uh, that, that seem to point in particular directions about uh, how you might, what kind of mindsets might be helpful if you want to go in this direction. Those five mindsets are, one. the first one is love and care. Uh, the next one is learning and growth. And learning and growth is like how can we really be a, an agent for people's development, right, so that they can hold themselves a little bit more object, as we were talking about earlier, and therefore uh, instead of react to their colleagues, being able to be a little more self-aware about how all that sort of things happens. That's a tiny little slither into that mindset. That's learning and growth. Then there's everyone as a leader. In other words, the traditional ways of thinking about leadership is you've got to basically have an authoritative position in the organization to be a leader. But actually, uh, the way of the more human way is just to assume that everybody's a leader, right? And and so if you can give people that sort of permission, uh, responsible freedom, uh, then they can make decisions in ways that really impact their lives at work, uh, and that they can use their full influence. And I talked a little earlier about <clears throat> what it was like being in the chartered accounting firm and feeling like I could add so much more value to your business if only you just kind of gave me a little more permission, you know. Mm. So this, everyone is a leader. Uh, and then there's the fourth mindset, which is belonging. Uh, the value of people feeling that they have this sense of um, connectedness with, uh, with, the with the firm and the other humans that work there. And then the final mindset is human systems. And that really relies on the idea that bureaucracy really is just such a stultifying experience for humans in general. So how might we be able to design our systems that really support the human experience, right, that doesn't make the system really overly bureaucratic? Um, and, and this mindset, we learned a lot about leaders who came from this mindset who were really understood the deeply complex nature of organizations and how linear solutions uh, often uh, that drive the kind of systems that we tend to put in place with bureaucracy often just don't work and don't serve humans. Mm. That's really great. And I love the idea that there isn't just a ready-made one-page template to follow <laughs> because... <laughs> I think I think you're right. It, it is about these mindset shifts, isn't it? And I liked the quote that you gave at the beginning about being willing to take risks and being willing to try things and adapt. And in a way, if you think about it, this is a more organic approach. You know, like we have trees or or plants and things, and they grow, and the branches go this way and that way. It's 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 a more real <laughs> approach to the fact that work shouldn't just be about numbers and spreadsheets it, it there's people as well so um with your number three i'm always interested in that one the leadership 
one because I think that is really important. I often will ask this question of people, which is, um, how many people do you lead? You know, and and they'll say no one, or you know, I'm I'm just a fill in the blank. But then I f- reframe it and say, well, wait a minute, you are the leader of at least one person. And that one person might only be you, but you are the leader. And I think quite often, um, you know, particularly in, for some people, it, it's a concept they've never thought about, basically, that that actually I'm responsible for my reactions, that I'm responsible for where I'm going, and that therefore I am a leader. But if you if you have that shift of mindset, all of a sudden, there's a real empowerment that comes from, well, I see a process that seems to be broken over here. I have something to say about that. And I'm going to speak up. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm really pleased that you've dug in around that, Stephen. Um, It's such a typical human response, isn't it, to look up the tree and, and, you know, like blame the leader or, um, you know, be frustrated. And it really takes something both ways for the person in positional authority to see that if I could just release a little bit of each human's self-leadership here, we'd all be on, we'd all be paddling the boat in a way that would make my job as a person of in position of authority a lot easier. Um, so it feels like it comes from both levels in, in my mind, both that wow, if you could open that up, if I can see that, oh, wow, I actually could be the leader not only of myself, but I'm influencing people around me all the time mm-hmm. by the way that I take I take a leadership action. I see something that's broken, as you say, I take action. Rather than complaining about somebody, I go and have the conversation with that person. Um, the kind of conversations I'm willing to engage in around the water um, fountain in the morning uh, or you know, you you just have such a massive influence on folk around you. And, and so, as you say, if people can really see that, oh, that influence is actually my leadership. Yeah, exactly. And actually something I've noticed, I don't know if you've seen it as a trend, um, but I've noticed that people aren't giving out business cards as much anymore. I'm not yeah. sure exactly what is driving that. Maybe it's partly just sustainability in terms of why do we print these things that then we know get thrown away. <laughs> but the the shift is important, I think, because so often in the past, we've been focused on the title that's written on the business card and focused on, well, is it does it say associate or does it say senior associate or does it say senior or whatever, you know, (laughs) and um, that's sort of a, a, maybe, maybe it's what we're talking about here is, could there be a shift from positional hierarchy to more of a broader, you know, we're in the canoe together. If you have a good idea, hey, speak up about it. Exactly. And and one of the one of the ways, and like there's so many practical examples in the book uh, of, of leaders being able to do that. And a story that I um, I heard a while ago was just, um, it was in a hotel chain. And it was, you know, the rosters had always been set by the, you know, roster manager. And uh, they made this small move to be able to say, well, actually, um, we've got the technology now. So what we can do is we can collaboratively put the rosters together. And I heard the story of this lady who had, um uh lived her mother lived with her and her mother went to mass every sunday and the one thing that this woman who worked as a, a one of the cleaners in the hotel really wanted to be able to do during her week was to be able to take her mother to mass and occasionally she would take leave on a sunday so she could do that but what happened when the organization decided to give the authority to the people who were actually impacted upon by the roster was that everybody got to choose week on week how they were going to uh, organize themselves. And this lady didn't roster herself on to work on a Sunday. And every Sunday she got to take her mum to mass. Hmm. And, and, you know, it plays out in cultivating leadership in so many ways where um, we have four minimum specifications, min specs about the way in which we are with each other. Uh, and, um, we have 
anyone can be a uh, like if you if you want to bring in a client into cultivating leadership you could be a client lead or you could give that client lead role to somebody and as the client lead regardless of or there are no levels in cultivating leadership so you choose your team and you then you collectively work on how you're going to work with the client and so there is just so many ways in which you can really empower people, I think, to be able to make decisions closest to where they're, they're impacted um, and, and yeah, ways that have people feel like they've got some say. Which I think in, in a way, possibly decades from now, people will listen back to this podcast and maybe we've actually gone to a new place that you're t- this type of book that you're describing, you know, these these attitudes, these ways of approaching, because I have a feeling that that might be the case. I mean, I'm not a prophet, but maybe in 40, 50 years, it will just be more of a normal thing, or maybe sooner. Let's hope it's sooner. Yeah, let's (laughs) hope it's sooner. That's right. Yeah, because I I, mm. I see that, that, that culture shift, though, or that, that shifting of organizational culture, that does take time. But when people start buying into it, I think it has massive impacts. I'm not sure if you've come across leadership labs down here based in Christchurch, um, but what they're doing is similar structure. Well, the point is that they're very flat structure. So they do a lot of amazing work, but they're all contributing. Um, So I've just been really impressed with them, Chris Jensen and what they're doing. Um, But it's an example, another example, and I've seen other ones which are really interested in the models of Dow ownership okay. so yeah. um autonomous mm. authority and and so there's definitely a lot of shifts going on in terms of how people approach it and i yeah. also think the next generation is going to want to see more of this i think you're particularly right particularly when it yeah. comes to what's the impact or purpose in my job and mm. i want to have a say in what's going on here yeah and w- one of the um leaders in the book uh is the ceo uh, well actually ex-CEO of an organization that is um, that runs by holacracy. And why I say ex-CEO is those positions have been disestablished. And so it's a, it's a non-hierarchical structure, large uh, organization out of the Netherlands called Ames. Uh, and it's, it's an engineer, you know, a software engineering company. And yet it's managed to be able to, to take on the holacracy model um, and therefore have this really, as you say, flat structure. And I, you're absolutely right. I mean, as I as I watch younger people, and this has been the joy of of co-writing with Ryan too, who's I don't know, he's got to be 15 years younger than me, maybe 20, and uh, and and he does see the world differently from a generational perspective, um, which is really inspiring. So long may these young um, folk feel empowered to be able to continue to to push us out of the way <laughs> and have things work for them. Yeah. So I'm just going to play the, an advocate against what we're talking about here, just for the sake of doing that. So just bear okay. with me. Yeah. But, um, you know, what you're talking about here, what we're really talking about at work is how much money we can make and how much yeah. profits we can return to shareholders. Is any of this really, does this really matter? It sounds a little bit too, like we're just making everyone feel special. Yeah. Is there a place for this? Like, do you get that sort of reaction or or not? Obviously yeah. I don't actually feel that, but I'm just yeah. wondering. I love it, Stephen. And, um, you know, when I wrote my first book, uh, that was much more in the space of why should organizations um, worry about anything other than making money? Um, and this was a celebration of Australian New Zealand CEOs doing well by doing good. In other words, making money, but at the same time, caring for the environment or caring for the community. And at the time, I remember having to really argue the business case really hardcore about why organizations might want to be more socially responsible, why they might want to think about sustainability, that kind of thing. Now, that was only 22-ish years ago. And and if I think about it today, I mean, business has got a mile to go in terms of corporate social responsibility and sustainability. But it's very rare for me to be challenged these days about, well, what's the business case for this? You know, like organizations really, 
I think in the main understand that you need a social license to operate and and that our expectations of organizations environmentally and from a social perspective have just increased. And so they have no choice, uh, even if they don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so my my uh, hope, Stephen, is that we're in this situation in the very near future where we don't actually have to argue the business case. Um, it makes complete sense to me that we would have to. And I'm very happy to see the review of the Companies Act currently going through, which um, has us be more explicit about the role of directors being able to um, to act in a socially responsible manner. Um, but uh, I'm not an expert in holding numbers in my head. Uh, and, and in the book, we uh, talk about the business case a reasonable amount. Uh, this morning, I was just reading, uh, rereading actually one of the articles that um, uh, was on MIT Sloan just in March this year on um, the predictors from, sorry, uh, March last year, um, on the predictors of um, the Great Resignation, not the predictors, but actually uh, the research around what they found. And although the Great Resignation uh was a point in time and it wasn't necessarily a global uh, phenomenon. Um, What they were able to find was that the best predictors of employee turnover by tenfold was a toxic culture. And how much does an employee turnover cost? The guess, not the guess, the estimate in this MIT Sloan article is 20% of an annual salary. Mm. So during the period between April and September in 2021, there were 24 million Americans who left their job. That's a lot of 20%. And so if the greatest driver for the great resignation was toxic culture, and then there were others that were a long way behind, job insecurity, um, failure to recognise employee performance, that kind of thing. Then what those same uh, analysts did, and we're talking about the the Donald Sowell and Charles Sowell, um, what they did is they worked out what toxic culture actually meant, and they used Glassdoor and millions of analysis of that. And what they found was um, if the biggest predictor of employee turnover was toxic culture by at least tenfold, and the cost of one person leaving is 20% of their salary. What makes up toxic culture is disrespectful behavior, non-inclusivity, being unethical, cutthroatness, and abusiveness. Mm. So, you know, you can flip it on the other on its on its head and say, well, we want to work in this direction of, of more human work. If we don't, we can go in the more toxic culture direction. There's a strong business case for why that isn't a smart thing to do as a as a authoritative leader in an organization. Yeah, well, I appreciate that as a as a counter because obviously I don't actually think that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wrote a little book called Laying Foundations for Reimagining Business, which we can put in the show notes as well if people are okay. interested in that. Yeah. Um, but it's basically looking at purpose and mission at the heart of businesses and and what is it that drives people. Um, because I think there's this saying of, you know, quiet quitting that someone yeah. comes to work in a way who you described at the start when you didn't feel any motivation, you're just yeah. coming, you're there for the minimum amount of time. There's no extra creativity. There's no input into the overall environment and contrast that with someone who's engaged, who's coming up with ideas who's willing to go the extra mile for the customer and for their colleagues. Like it's just completely different, isn't it? So um, I I hear what you're saying. And and as a plug for the, um, you mentioned the changes to the Companies Act. As a lawyer, that's something I'm really interested in. So I actually interviewed Dr. Duncan Webb, who's Uh, behind the scenes um, on that. So we can put a link to that because it's fascinating. And yeah, those changes could have an impact on what do directors think about when they're making decisions, you know, the treaty, employees, the environment, other things. So, yeah. Beautiful, Stephen. Yeah. Um, and and that, that just takes me down a complete rabbit hole, which has got really nothing to do with what we're talking about, which is um, one of one of my children was in youth parliament last year and his, um, his speech, they all get the opportunity to make a three-minute speech, and his speech was about 
um, reviewing the Companies Act so that it actually could really um, prioritise not just returns to shareholders, but actually stakeholder governance. Yeah, well, that's I've been talking for years about this. So if anyone's interested, <laughs> look me up and you can see, because I've been involved in writing reports um, with the Akina Foundation uh, about what could a new legal structure look like that provides the framework or the bones to populate with the principles that you're talking about. So actually, yep. there's a lot of crossover here. Wow. Um, because what would it look like if we had a legal structure that actually incentivized having purpose and mission at the heart? Because yes. the problem in our legal system right now is that companies don't have to say what their purpose or mission is. They right. don't have to have a constitution. So there's some changes that we could put in place that would actually open up what the future is. And I love that the time machine picture is like, if we could go forward a hundred years from now and look at what companies are, businesses, and then come back to today and say, right, we got to build the foundations to get there. I think we could do that. And your book is a good contribution to that as well. And I think legally there's some changes that we would probably implement because people forget companies are legal fictions. They do not exist. We made them up. And therefore, yeah. we can remake them up to yes. serve what we actually want. So, yes. yeah, oh, thank no, you I, love, I love rabbit holes. It's so important. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you more info after the call in I case it, it interests you. Um, yeah, I love those rabbit holes. These are the best types of conversations. And so Melissa was right to put us in touch because <laughs> you go off in all different ways. But yeah. I, I really enjoy it. And I think the listeners enjoy it as well because they're in their car commuting or at the gym or cooking and they're having a, you know, listening on us, having a chat. <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about the book or any parting thoughts? Um, what I, I guess what I would say, I know they'll be in the show notes, but uh, we have a website, humanworknetwork.com where you can actually add your name now, if you want to be kept up to date with the activity Um of the book. The, the book is being launched on the 26th of April. Uh, if you want to come along to the launch, you'd be more than welcome if you're curious about what other people around the world are, um, are showing up for these sorts of conversations, please come. Um, so for, for New Zealand listeners, it's 7.30am uh, to 9am so that we can get more of a global audience. Great. Well, that's yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. One of the things that I try to do in the podcast, in a way, is to humanize the person behind the story. So instead of coming in in kind of what I would call a Western approach, which would be, so Leanne, tell us about the book. Instead, we started with your childhood. We heard about your mother, your father, your influences as a young adult coming through the career that you had, and then what led you to write the book. And I think that's more you know, to use the word human, it's a more human or holistic way to talk with people. Um, and this will be about episode 341 or 42. So there's a lot of conversations where that's what I'm trying to do is humanize the story and listen to people through their journeys. Um, so thank you for joining the ranks of one of the people who've been on the show. Um, I really, I, you know, I love that I saw the dedication in the book to your mother and I just Love that we were able to talk about her a little bit. And that's going to stick with me. The fact that you said everyone that she met went away feeling better about themselves. Like what a gift to be able to have a life of service in that way. Even, you know, not all of us. And in some ways, I hope I never end up in the front page of the newspaper. But if everybody had that approach in this conversation, how can I help this person? that would do a massive amount to humanize all of our situations. Then I don't think we'd be needing to write a book about human work, right, Stephen? We'd just all be doing it. Yeah, exactly. So I was going to say for anyone who wanted the five-step process for humanizing work, Stephen just gave it to you. Right. (laughs) It's only one step. Just leave something off. Is that the be kind one? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks a lot. 
Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rianne. As you could tell, we went all over the place, and I really enjoyed it. If you did as well, then why not tell one other person about the show? And don't forget that there's more than 340 other interviews in the back catalog. Until next time, kakite ano!